Hello and welcome to the Activist Podcast, brought to you by Vegan FDA, vegan for the animals. I'm your host, Gareth Skir, and I'll also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife, Jackie Norman. In this episode, we have the amazing Eduardo Gonzalez, founder of the campaign to ban trophy hunting. In the interview, Eduardo enlightens us to the realities of trophy hunting and the extent of this industry. We hope you learn as much as we did from this episode and be sure to check us out on social media pages at VeganFTA on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube where you can also find the series in video format. Thank you so much for joining us, Eduardo. We are honoured to have Britain's most prominent anti-hunting activist here with us today. You have been all over the national and international news for a while now, but for anyone who has yet to come across your incredible work, would you mind telling our viewers a little bit about who you are and what you do? (laughs) Well, thank you for that. Um, I'm a grey-haired 50-something-year-old who thinks that torturing, exploiting and killing animals for fun is just completely unacceptable in a modern society. And that's really the end all and be all of it. So I currently, I run an organization called the Campaign to Ban Trophy Hunting. What we're trying to do is essentially ban this archaic, cruel industry to the past. It belongs in the history books and nowhere else. Uh, Certainly shouldn't be part of a 20th century civilized society. Um, And we're based in the UK. Uh, and we've started our work here, really, partly because we've got greater access to the media and to politicians and, uh, and other NGOs here as well. But it's an international organisation and campaign. Our end objective, as I say, is essentially to abolish it in the same way that slavery has been abolished, apartheid has been abolished. We see it in that same moral prism. It's something that is utterly repulsive, immoral and wrong. You guys are doing some fantastic work, and I, I look forward to uh, discussing it further in this interview. Um, but we understand that at the just eight years old, you discovered uh, bullfighting. And even at such an age, your experience of this so-called sport really shaped your entire life by creating a huge focus on animal welfare. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what it means to you today? Well, as you uh, worked out, my name isn't a common British one. Uh, I'm of Portuguese origin. Um, and uh, I would often go and spend my summer holidays with the family back in Portugal, you know, parents in, in the UK, but the rest of the family in Portugal. And one of the things that you'd often see, particularly at the weekends, would um, you'd have these vans that would go around the neighbourhoods with these megaphones on them, and they'd be broadcasting the fact that there'd be a bullfight going on the next weekend or the next day or whatever, and you'd see big billboards, and sometimes it was shown on TV as well. And I just simply couldn't understand it. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't understand why anyone would want to hurt uh, and humiliate and ultimately just kill, destroy an animal's life just for kicks. I just couldn't get it. And I asked my family about it. I said, well, you know, I just help me understand this. Fortunately, they didn't believe in it. They didn't support it either. Um, and it's something we all talked about very openly. And it was, I suppose, a, 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 the beginning of a long journey, which I'm, I'm still currently on. And, you know, I sometimes look back on it and think, you know, when we grow up as adults, we often complicate things by making them overly grey or shades of grey. Whereas, actually, you know, some issues are purely black and white. And sometimes we have to hold on to that childlike innocence to be able to call things out for what they really are. And I think animal cruelty is a really good example of that. We sometimes 
as a society make compromises which are fundamentally unacceptable. If we were able to step back and look at this objectively from, if you like, that innocent child's point of view or a visiting alien, you, know, you, you would see absolutely that this is crazy. It's insane. It's wrong. And I think that's something that we need to try to hold on to. I certainly try to hold on to that perspective um, and, and, and use that to analyse issues and, and to, if you like, spur me on. Yeah, that's, oh, you know, thank goodness that you uh, you made the connection so young and, and it has shaped you in the way that it has to make such a difference now. And, you know, I think the word that you use, humiliation, is a huge one when it comes to watching these these awful things. Um, certainly, I, you know, since becoming vegan, I look at bullfighting really, really differently. And the humiliation, that's what gets me, you know, that we're doing this to, to another beautiful creature like that um and indeed you know before before your work became known to us in such a powerful way i mean all of a sudden you're boom just everywhere particularly uh with the with the release of your latest book which we'll talk about um but i had no idea what a huge problem it was you know we we would see the odd thing in the news about dentist shoots lion and you know everyone would get up into uproar but you know the this is a huge huge problem and to give our viewers a size you know an idea of the size any impact of the work that you've been doing your sos link campaign which was to, to um you know stop the ex extinction of the iberian lynx actually resulted in this entire species no longer being classed as critically endangered which is so fantastic you know prior to your campaign the global population of these animals was less than 100 so that must have been an insanely wonderful feeling you know to to play such a huge part in that do you feel that the media coverage was one of the key aspects in making your campaign a success it was essential it wouldn't have been a success without it. Uh, you know, you, you say there was fewer than 100. Just to give you an example of the scale of the collapse of the population, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was 100,000 Iberian lynxes, and then we were down to 92, of which only 28 were breeding age females. There were none in captivity, so there was no breeding programme. There was no prospect of the species surviving. We were actually looking into the abyss of the very real prospect of the first big cat extinction on Earth since the saber-toothed tiger, and that's back in prehistoric times. That's the scale of the conservation crisis we were looking at. And of course, that would have huge ramifications because this was Europe's only endemic big cat. And so for many of the European governments and conservation organizations who are constantly trying to fund organizations in the developing world, but also putting pressure on governments in developing nations to say, look, you've got to protect your species better. You've got to protect your habitats. What kind of credibility? would big NGOs have if we let our own, and in fact, our very only big cat disappear on our very doorstep. So it had, you know, enormous ramifications, and that was why it was essential to stop it. And yes, so the, the role of the media was critical. We, When we got involved in the campaign, or when we started it, um, there was literally no book in English that had ever been written about the Iberian lynx species. There'd been no story in any newspaper in the world there were very few photos of it, let alone film footage. So the, the the way we started the campaign was basically to start telling people what it was, that it was amazing, this is what it looked like, this was what the problem was. And we, we you know, fortunately, I've got a background both as a journalist and I worked as a policy advisor in government as well. So I kind of understood a little bit how you can get an issue to the top of the pile because there's so many issues out there, as you well know, and the struggle is always to get your voice heard in amongst all of that white noise. And so it, I was able to contact editors and, 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 and magazine writers. Also, uh, I worked very closely uh, with a guy called Richard Brock, 
Now, he was the producer of David Attenborough's Life on Earth series, and he came down to Portugal um, and started filming. And in fact, we got documentaries, you know, on the BBC, uh, National Geographic, uh, Discovery Channel, and it was on, you know, newspapers and magazines everywhere. Suddenly, it was an issue that was on the map. Very few people had ever, ever heard of it. In fact, I'll tell you, when I rang up the head of species of one of the world's largest conservation organizations and asked him, look, what are you doing and can we work together? And he said, well, isn't that a subspecies of Eurasian lynx? And of course it isn't. <laughs> it's one of the unique 36 species. And for the fact, the fact that the, you know, the head of the species program of one of the world's largest conservation organizations didn't know a simple basic fact like that, I mean, that really sets off alarm bells. And it was a real indicator of just how, if you like, conservation groups generally had dropped the ball. So we had to make a lot of noise. Now, it's one thing to make noise, it's another to be heard. You know, just complaining or whinging or whatever, you know, that doesn't necessarily need to change. You have to be focused, you have to understand how to work with the media, how they work, how they see the world. And, uh, you know, and that's been fundamental, obviously, to the work that we've done uh, with the trophy hunting issue. And we've been able to get the support of, well, pretty much every newspaper in Britain on, on an official, and I'm talking about editorials, when you have the Times and the Daily Mirror and the Daily Star and, and, and Sunday People and so on, all putting editorials out saying, yeah, we stand together with the campaign to ban trophy hunting. What that does is it makes ministers and governments sit up and take notice. And, you know, we, we may not like the mainstream media and all it does all of the time, but the fact is it is influential. And we have to be smart as a movement to know how to work with it and how to understand that journalists, they're looking for a good story. Editors, they, they, they're wanting to write about things which are important to their readers. And on this issue, it's very clear, and indeed on pretty much all animal welfare issues, actually, you know, one thing that journalists and editors will tell you is when we write a story about animal cruelty, the number of comments that we get on the story when we put it on the online page just goes off the, you know, it goes off the scale. And so they know. And so you have to say, look, you know, I can bring you a good story. These are the facts. You have to be credible. You know, it has to be based on evidence. Uh, but you, you have to be able to tell it in such a way that's going to be able to engage their readers, their viewers. That's something that I think the whole animal protection and advocacy movement has to be better at. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if we're going to be heard rather than just making noise, that's the key to it. Thank you. That is some brilliant advice yeah. there. And um, we've had a few of our activists through this series, like Captain Paul Watson um, in episode one of season two. He spoke as well about trying to capture that media attention as well and the, how you can use, um, what was it, scandal, violence, sex, and celebrity. Uh, if you have all four of those, you have a super story that, of course, these uh, tabloids will pick up. And um, yeah, it's some brilliant advice. I really hope everyone it picks up on that. So when you're writing into your local paper, you, you know what to do. Um, but your, as we've already touched on, you know, your uh, campaign to ban trophy hunting, it reached national and international headlines, and it made trophy hunting one of the biggest uh, animal welfare issues in the UK for 2019 at least yeah. um the pub public really got behind this course as you say you know they see the the animal stuff they go nuts for it um it happens everywhere we see it here in new zealand every mm -hmm. time the local brings out anything on animals it goes crazy um but yeah it's just having that that backing from these papers like the daily mail and uh, celebrities uh publicly endorsing the campaign um what was it like actually working with the the major tabloids and these sort of um people because 
all too often we see in the vegan movement uh vegans butting heads with the the papers you know all these damning headlines from the news outlets and they tend to oppose the sort of collaborative efforts um for the good of the animals the planets and us so what was it like working with these folks it's really about understanding what their needs are and you know how they operate and you know how news works and it's the same with politics to be honest um you know at the end of the day politicians are accountable to us and we sometimes forget that they are elected and therefore hired by us they are our employees <laughs> so we pay them we hire them when we pay them through our taxes to do our bidding to provide us with the services and we give them a four or five year contract or whatever and then we review it to see if we like the work they've done and if they're not they're fired and we have to sometimes remember that we have that power you know we are the readers of these newspapers we are the voters who put politicians in power or not um and you know politicians do read the newspapers and see what they say and they notice what's in their post bag you know in the old days it was literally a post bag and, and I, I worked in parliament I, I worked in the u.s congress and you would literally analyze what was coming in through the door in the sack of mail every day to see what your local constituents were worried about were angry about were happy about um nowadays it's done much more electronically but the rules are the same so you know we have to i think understand the power that we have and and, and start exerting it uh, you know we are citizens fortunately we live in a democracy and and it's not good enough to simply say well the world is all rubbish and crap and things are terrible and you know i'm just going to complain it's about thinking okay well, what is the one thing i can actually do and uh, you know what what are the skills that i perhaps have or what are the people that i know who can help me to achieve a particular goal so we've got to be strategic we've got to be smart we've got to know how the world works in order to make it a better world definitely and you know i mean you're doing such an incredible job with, with all the books and the coverage that you've been getting it's it's fantastic to get this insight for someone who really knows you know the inside and in and, and out of the media and, and knows how to to really you know work it to uh to such a, a positive advantage and in both of your campaigns you know a key focus has been on changing the legal system surrounding these issues how important is it that we enter into the courtroom and ensure that we're active and advocating in a court of law is that something we really need to be doing, you know, all of us when we can? Well, I think we need to use all of the instruments of power and influence that we have at our disposal. And the courts, the legal system is absolutely one of them. Uh, if we look specifically at the trophy hunting issue, one of the things that we're doing at the moment is getting the UK government to ban the import of hunting trophies into the UK. But we're going to need to go further than that because that's one piece of the puzzle. Ultimately, we need to change the law internationally when it comes uh, to saving the pr and protecting the species which are affected by it. At the moment, what we have is uh, the, the Wildlife Trade Regulation Agreement, CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, which isn't actually a conservation agreement, uh, but it, it, it's the closest that we have to protecting animals and their use and trade and so on. But there's a really big problem because although it says even the most endangered animals like leopards and cheetahs, you know, they are the most endangered and you cannot trade them and use them and their body parts for anything except possibly in exceptional circumstances, there's this gaping loophole in the law that says, oh, but it's okay if you're a trophy hunter because, you know, somehow that isn't a commercial activity. Uh, you know, when you're killing these animals, it's, for, you know, to get to an item of furniture or fashion or whatever, you know, something to stick up on, in the wall or to turn into a handbag. And, and it's absolutely nuts because apart from anything else, the wildlife trade crime syndicates 
have seen a huge opportunity and they've driven a coach and horses through the law. And so you literally had crime syndicates in Asia who were putting peasants and prostitutes from Vietnam onto planes to South Africa, getting them to pretend to be a trophy hunter. Actually, they didn't even know how to fire a rifle. So the professional hunting company guide had to shoot the rhino for them. And then they take the rhino horn and the other body parts back to China or to, to Thailand or to Vietnam. And of course, it goes into the black market in the so-called traditional Chinese medicine market. So, you know, it, it's, it makes a mockery of the objective of the law. And ultimately, I think that CITES isn't salvageable. I think it absolutely needs to be tightened up, and that's a short-term objective, but ultimately, I think we need a global convention, similar to what we've seen, for example, for landmines, uh, for chemical and biological weapons. That's the scale of the challenge. So for that, we need to build an international consensus, a coalition of nations, uh, as well as of NGOs, that can take us to that core, to that position. And probably what we need in the first instance is a judicial ruling that states that trophy hunting is in contravention of other existing conservation laws, such as the Berne Convention, such as the Convention on Biological Diversity, such as the African Convention. There's a number of these different laws out there. We need to test the law. We need to use the courts as an instrument to help protect the animals that are the victims of this atrocious industry. I... I love the idea of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. we um we often see small campaigns being launched with petitions, and um, while we see this as the first logical sort of step, um, is this the the best way or most effective step to get it finally into the courtrooms? Uh, petitions can be useful in a number of ways. They can create a supporter base, so people who sign up, you then have an audience, if you like, a, a, a core group. Uh, they can be useful in testing public opinion on an issue. Um, and uh, and also, if they're very big, they can actually influence change, but they need to be really big to have that kind of impact. So it's it's a useful starting point. But what I say to people is, look, you need to, it's a bit like a toolkit. You don't go and fix a radiator with just a screwdriver. You have a whole tool bag and you have different things to fix the drips, to fix it to the wall, to get the thing working, whatever it is you need to do to get the whole thing working and moving again. And, and that's how we need to think about campaigning. That's how we need to think about the organizations that we form and, and all the coalitions that we pull together to see what are the different skills and, and, and things that we all bring to the table, because some people are better than others. You know, there's things that I know that other people don't. There's people who are much better at other things than I am. And I willingly go to them and say, look, I need your help with this. I need your help with that. That's what we need to be thinking about is all of the different ways that we can take, if you like, this ship to its eventual port. Petitions can be really useful, but I would see it as only one of a number of tools that you can use. That's fantastic advice again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. It's it's good to know. You know, we always want to make change, but it's hard to know, you know, A, where to start and B, how to really, you know, make a difference. Um, you're making a difference in so many ways. I mean, over the years, you've authored and co-authored an impressive range of books, um, including The Algarve Tiger, Trophy Hunters Exposed, which I love, and its sequel, Killing Game, The Extinction Industry. Um, in Trophy Hunters Exposed, you reveal the identities, and I love this, of over 500 hunters who have won industry awards for shooting all of the African big five. And, you know, this is blows our minds. This, this shameful lineup includes a salesman who actually helped hunters to shoot juvenile lions in enclosures. You know, it, it's incredible to think that people are actually breeding these animals for this purpose how did you go about tracking down these people and were there any repercussions in doing so 
<laughs> well, I think it's fair to say that some of these people have maybe taken me off their Christmas card list if I, if I was ever on it, which I suspect I probably wasn't. Um, but uh, a lot of this information is actually in the public domain. So it's about knowing where to go and get it. And, I, and it's very important. I do stress the fact that I get information from the public domain as much as possible because, you know, it's out there. It's, it's public. It's legal, etc. And, and everyone has access to it, and therefore anyone can go and check to see its veracity. And I, as you probably have seen with my books, I, I footnote and endnote everything meticulously so people can see the evidence is there, it's strong, it's undeniable. Um, now, since then, I actually wrote another book called Trophy Leaks, which came out just before Christmas. And what that did was I, I looked um, at the hunting awards system. So hunting organizations, they have these different prizes in which basically they encourage hunters to shoot lots and lots of animals. And it's a bit like an arcade or a computer game. So to get through level one, you have to shoot X number of animals. To get onto the next level, you then have to shoot even more animals and so on and so forth. And you keep going up this escalator. Um, and uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit like a drug dealer's tactics, really. You, you get the, the, the your, your client hooked and then you get them onto stronger stuff and you get more money out of them and all the rest of it. That's very much how the hunting industry works. So you have uh, prizes in there called the Hunting Achievement Award, for example. To get that at the top level, you have to shoot animals from 125 different species around the world, which is extraordinary. And there are a number of hunters who I've, I've named in my books who have shot literally thousands of animals. You know, it's 2,000, 5,000, and, and even more in some cases. And which is an absolutely extraordinary level of slaughter for an individual, you know, to, to undertake. Now, I've just, in fact, uh, about two hours ago, as it happened, finished the first draft of my next book, which is called Making a Killing. And what that looks at is, is not so much the hunters, it's looking at the companies that sell these hunting trips, these hunting holiday packages, and how much money they're making from it. That Hence the title, Making a Killing. Because some of these companies are literally making millions a year from perpetrating, you know, these atrocities on animals where people can come and kill for thrills. Wow. It's insane, isn't it? I well, remember. Oh, well, there sorry. you go. No, there you go. It's <laughs> so, so, yeah, my brain is going 19 to the dozen. I remember even, even here in New Zealand, um, you know, I, I remember being amazed in the middle of farmland, absolutely out in the middle of nowhere. There is, um, and I'm sure it's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination, but I was amazed to find this, and this wasn't, you know, tropical animals as such, but th these were deer and, and other, um, you know, New Zealand game animals that this place was like Fort Knox. There was security everywhere. There was high fencing, like, and, you know, they yeah, it was very, very highly protected by the owner. And he'd fenced off this huge area of farmland to turn it into a game park. And people were flying in from all over the world and paying incredible sums, you know, and that's just for killing deer. Um, you know, we're not even going into the, the lions and the cheetahs and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, they, that was that was very confronting to me. So it goes on, yeah, so much more than we think. So um, I'm sure you're very well, aware of, of what goes on over here as well. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, in terms of New Zealand, um, you'll find when you read my next book that actually some of the most profitable hunting companies in the world are in New Zealand. And not only is it indigenous species, but also animals that have been imported from elsewhere, from the Himalayas and other places, and they're in these game parks, as you say, for people to fly in and shoot for fun. And there's also, right now, even though you know there's the pandemic and there's COVID and all the rest of it, you can actually go online and purchase a trophy hunt 
of wallabies in New Zealand. This is on sale right now. You can go to a website and openly buy a trophy hunt to shoot wallabies for fun. And there's some wonderful photos that these companies have where they're showing the, you know, the poor dead wallabies that have been killed by hunters in previous years on, on their estates. So it isn't just, as you say, something that happens in Africa. It is something that's happening on every part of the world, New Zealand being a very good example. But another example that I think a lot of people aren't aware of is Canada. Canada is the one country in the world that allows trophy hunters to jet in and shoot polar bears mm. for fun, for sport, for souvenirs, for selfies, all of it. You know, and people think, my goodness, you know, polar bears are one of the most endangered animals on Earth. They're almost a, a, a symbol of the conservation crisis that we face today. And yet, even though America's banned it, Russia's banned it, Norway's banned it, in Canada, Canada still allows hunters from all around the world to jet in and shoot polar bears just for a laugh and just so they can get that head or that body or whatever back home to show off to your pals. Stop the podcast. We'd like to take a moment to give a shout out to one of our partners, the NZAVS. The New Zealand Anti-Vivisection Society, NZAVS, is New Zealand's primary charity defending animals used in science. Their mission is to end animal experimentation and the harmful use of animals for research, testing and teaching. Follow them to keep up with their tireless work and game-changing campaigns for the animals at nzavs.org.nz. Now back to the podcast. It's just so disgusting like that. This thing is it shouldn't be happening in, in this age. Um, one thing that really shocked me during the research for this as well was just the uh, the, the industrial scale farms for breeding things, even like the lions, just to be shot. Like this is the thing when we think of industrial farming, it's always like chicken, cows, pigs. You know, all, all you usually abuse animals and like fish and things like that. But uh, to think that even you know lions and all these other creatures are being treated in the same ways, it's just it's horrendous. It's um, <laughs> it is shocking. And and what is happening is you you have literally thousands of lions in cages right now today that are waiting for a trophy hunter to come along, choose them. And they go out into the enclosure, fenced in area that they can't escape from, and to be shot. And it's very cheap because, you know, if you want to hunt a wild lion in Tanzania or Zimbabwe or Zambia or whatever, you're going to be out in the field, you know, for weeks probably. So you're paying daily fees to a professional hunting guide, which you have to do. And all the time you're also racking up the cost of staying in luxury accommodation and all the rest of it. Whereas you go to one of these places, it's, it's bred in a cage shot in an enclosure it's a fraction of the cost you can pick up a lion or a lioness for five thousand dollars for example whereas if you're trying to fill you know get a, a wild one in tanzania 70 or eighty thousand is, is is not untypical and now they're not just breeding lions so you've got leopards you've got cheetahs you've got tigers tigers are being bred in cages for people to shoot for trophies but all sorts of you know, zebras bears there's even a couple of elephants that have been bred in captivity. I mean, the list is absolutely mind-boggling. There's literally dozens of animals that are being bred, and not just in Africa. You go to Argentina, they're breeding cougars in captivity for people to go down and shoot. You know, Argentina and South America is becoming a hub of the trophy hunting industry, increasingly so. And you can go and shoot captive-bred cougars there as well. Hmm. Yeah, insanity. I don't get, you know, like with this this game park that I was talking about in New Zealand, you know, they're all fenced in. They can't escape. What kind of sport is that? It's like, oh, me big man, me big hunter, look what I got. It's like, well, it wasn't bloody hard, was it? <laughs> it's convenience hunting. You know, we've got convenience food, we've got convenience that. 
we've now got convenience hunting. And, you know, people say to me, well, surely during COVID and the pandemic and all the rest of it, you know, people haven't been able to fly to Africa. And so it's been good for the wildlife there. Well, it's been good for the wildlife in Africa, but that doesn't mean it's been good for wildlife everywhere. Because if you go, for example, to the States, you've got this huge industry where they have exotics ranches. So what happens there is if you're an American hunter, you can't be bothered to fly halfway around the world to shoot a zebra. You don't need to anymore. Go to Texas. They've got loads of them on these exotics ranches. You've got all sorts of African animals, including some that actually are extinct in the wild. They've disappeared because in some cases they've been hunted to extinction by trophy hunters. But they've still got a few of them on these exotics ranches. So if you want a really rare trophy, something that actually technically doesn't exist in the, in the world anymore... You want to stick that on your on your wall? Well, go to Texas. They've got them there. It's like a, a shopping mall. You can go. You can literally order off a menu. Sometimes you can even order off menu, and they can arrange it for you. And I tell you, some Australians go from Australia to these places in Texas in order to shoot kangaroos for trophies because they can't do it in Oz, but they can do it in the US, and then they can try and take the trophies back home. It just blows my mind, eh? It's, it's crazy. It's, I was thinking when you when you mentioned the wallaby hunting, I, I know that New Zealanders hunt wallabies, but, you know, you, you go to areas, you go to Rotorua. If you want to see a, a wallaby in the wild, you know, doing its wallaby thing, go to Rotorua and go to some of the lakes and see them in their beautiful natural environment. Don't go and, and just, you know, shoot butcher them. butcher one in yeah. an enclosure. But um, like many vegans, you know, we're constantly learning about the world around us and what lies beneath the veil, you know, like from our former carnist lives. Um, through your books, you also expose links to things that many of us might not be aware of. Uh, for example, how some lobbyists are basically posing as conservation groups, as well as some household brands um, that may be funding trophy hunting. Um, we learned with a recent talk of our guest, Jordi Casmajana, which is episode three of season two, um, how important it is to not blindly put our faith in people or products. Can you share with our audience a little bit on this sort of topic and how, to be honest, even some of us could be funding some of these things without even realizing, you know, when it's when it's a bit hidden. Well, Jordi is one of the most knowledgeable people in the world about this. I mean, he's been involved in this field for years and years and years and somebody I've worked with very closely and, and, and know well. Now, in the case of trophy hunting, what we have is, as you say, there are organizations that have been created by the trophy hunting industry to provide this cover this front which says oh you know this is all about conservation so a really good example of that is a group called conservation force it's got a lovely wildlife sounding name doesn't it you know it sounds very lovely and fluffy it was set up by one of the world's top lion and elephant hunters <laughs> and who was also the president of safari club international and what conservation force does is it sues governments and in some cases companies uh, in order to allow the trade in hunting trophies to, to carry on. So I'll give you a good example. Um, when the state of New Jersey and the US said, right, we're no longer going to let hunting trophies come in through our ports, our seaports or our airports, they were sued by conservation force. And actually the judge agreed. So in fact, the ban was overturned. Another example was when there was a, a guy called Cory Knowlton, a, a leading American trophy hunter, who shot a critically endangered black rhino in Namibia. There's only 3,000 black rhinos left. And he managed to shoot one, and he wanted to take it home. And he wanted to take the, the rhino's body on Delta Airways, on Delta Airlines, the US uh, carrier. Delta said, no, no way. <laughs> 
So Conservation Force sued Delta. Now, in this case, they, they, they lost. And in fact, there's only 40 different airlines that have said, we're not carrying hunting trophies. It's just wrong. No way. Uh, but there's a lot of freight companies that have big air fleets like FedEx and so on, which still uh, transport them, although one or two have uh, said no. Now, the influence of these organisations cannot be underestimated. You look, for example, at the a thing called the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, which is a lobby group on Capitol Hill in the US, in Washington, which was created by Conservation Force. And it has over half of the members of Congress are members of it. Over half of the governors of US states are members of it. So this is an organization that is there to defend hunters', hunters rights, as they call it, to defend the freedom to hunt whatever we choose. That's one of the other expressions that they like to use. Um, and Conservation Force has managed to get itself accepted as a member of IUCN, the Global Conservation Organization, which determines what, what you know, the, the conservation status of different species. So it's whether they're endangered, critically endangered or not endangered and so on. Now, the committee of IUCN, which looks at lion issues, it's called the IUCN Lion Working Group. The leader of Conservation Force sits on that committee even though he has absolutely no scientific expertise or background whatsoever. He's a lion hunter, but he sits on that committee. There was a move a few years ago by scientists in IUCN and elsewhere to declare the lion as officially endangered, because although we know it's endangered, it's actually not classed as endangered by IUCN, it's classed as vulnerable. Even though population has fallen from about 1.2 million of about 200 years ago to less than 20,000 today, and we know that trophy hunting has had a major impact on lion populations. So when there was a move by governments, African governments and scientists to class lions as endangered, both by CITES um, and in IUCN, and also uh, in the US government, so the Endangered Species Act, there was this huge campaign that was launched by Conservation Force and Safari Club International, the world's largest trophy hunting organization, spends $14 million a year on lobbying governments, puts lots of money uh, into the election campaign funds for pro-hunting politicians. There were a number of members of the Trump administration when they ran for Congress. They were beneficiaries of those uh, thousands of dollars. Um, and it ran this campaign called Fighting for Lions. But what it was was actually fighting for the right of trophy hunters to shoot lions without any restrictions, without them being classed as endangered, which would be, it would have been much harder to take your trophy home. It would be you know, much harder to get through the, the red tape. And that's what they do. And they run this massive campaign and they won. And that's why the lion is not classed as endangered at the moment. And we saw their influence actually just 18 months ago. So CITES, which is the global body that oversees international wildlife trade, um, and it meets every three years. It has a big conference. It met in Geneva in August of 2019. And one of the things on the table was about trophy hunting black rhinos. The conference decided that even though there's only 3,000 black rhinos left in the world and they're classed by IUCN as critically endangered, trophy hunters could now go and shoot twice as many as before. And organizations like Conservation Force, they are official uh, they have official observer status within CITES. And one of the things that scientists and conservationists were telling me that really astonished them was how many times the CITES secretariat or the chair of the conference was going to the hunting groups and saying, so what do you think about this issue? What's your input on this? What would you like to say? So they are part and parcel 
of, if you like, the international conservation decision-making structures. So this is something we have to be aware of. We have to be, uh, we have to know their playbook so that we know how to counter it. And it's very important that people know that, you know, the, the reasons behind some of these very perverse decisions is that there are people who are in places where they have no right to be there. And so we have to shine the light on them because at the end of the day, there's one thing that trophy hunting industry does not like, and that is publicity. You know, Safari Club International puts more money into American elections than some of uh, America's biggest corporations. Yes, it's hardly a household name. You know, it's bigger than American Express or Delta or so, but people haven't heard of it. And that's because it prefers to stay in the shadows. And the reason is that they know that the public does not support trophy hunting, is utterly opposed, even in the US, which has you know a, a gun culture, as many people say, and you know most trophy hunters in the world come from the U.S. Actually, polling suggests that the majority, the vast majority of ordinary Americans, are opposed to trophy hunting. So that's why they prefer to stay in the shadows and instead set up these front organisations that lobby directly the politicians on Capitol Hill and puts money into their campaigns and they infiltrate the conservation bodies that make the important decisions and so on and so forth. That's their play. So we have to expose them. We have to put this firmly into the court of public opinion, because at the end of the day, that's all this is. This is an issue about which the public have to have a say. They have a right to speak on this, and we have a right to be heard. Thank you so much for that information, because it, you know, is something we'd never heard of before, and it just it blow. <laughs> this this whole interview just keeps blowing my mind know, as we're going right? along because. There's just so much I didn't know about this myself. And it's, so um, it's, it's great that, you know, you're there shining that spotlight. And I hope our activists out there can also pick up that torch and start shining it too, because... Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it also makes us want to fight harder, you know, and, and hopefully everybody watching will be the same. And, and it's got me thinking of, of talking to you, you know, I uh, came from a, a farming background years ago. And so I'm thinking of, of all the, the hunters in here in New Zealand that have got these deer heads on their walls that would absolutely abhor the hunting of lions and cheetahs. Yet, what's the difference? Well, um, when we given the example earlier about the uh, the lions in captivity and the the sort of the breeding and the farming of them, you know, it made me think about you know, well, it's like going down to your SPCA and like choosing the dog from the kennel and taking them out and shooting them, pretty much. You know, it's a uh, there's not that much of a difference, really, yeah. is there? But um, the old expression, shooting fish in a barrel, you know, and it's very much what what this is. And as I say, it's just making it cheap and more convenient because. For a long time, it was the preserve. Trophy hunting was the preserve of the rich, the colonial elites and so on, people who had a lot of money. But now, you know, some of the people that I've talked about in my books, you know, they're gas engineers or they, you know, they're, they're a, a supervisor for a utility company or they work for an IT firm. You know, these are very middle class people, in some, some cases, lower middle class. And now trophy hunting has been made affordable to them. And the growth of the canned hunting industry is absolutely astronomical. When Roger Cook, who was that great, TV uh, documentary maker and investigative journalist who was an inspiration to me. He made the, the first documentary that exposed this back in 1997. And at the time, there was maybe a dozen, half a dozen of these places. Now there's 300 facilities with about 10,000 or more lions in cages in South Africa alone. That's how fast the industry has grown. They're breeding about 6,000 cubs every year as well. And it's not just for the hunting industry. Of course, some of these animals are then uh, killed for bones and turned into lion wine and lion cake 
which is then you know so, so used in so-called traditional Chinese medicines or you know for status drinks that are offered by wealthy uh, Asian clients. So these things are very much connected. And again, one of the things that happened, which shows the power of the industry, that took place at the CITES conference a few years ago. South Africa was able to gain an exemption for the lion bone trade. So lions are being bred commercially and sold commercially for their bones to be turned into wine and cake for uh, Asian clients and they're shipped to Vietnam and to China and so on. And of course that's illegal under, under CITES own rules. So they had to lobby very successfully for an exemption to be made. And they were granted that exemption. So now we have literally hundreds of skeletons and other bones of lions and their animals are being bred in, in captivity. So it is very much like industrial farming. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. I can't believe it. No. <laughs> it's, 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 it's mental. Um, but often within the vegan movement, we hear rumblings from groups that pressure campaigns and single issue actions are not enough. Um, but to quote a, a vegan YouTuber, The Cranky Vegan, uh, he recently said, the reality is without taking steps forwards, He's just standing still. And um, how has it been for you with um, having a single focus in your campaigns? Has that really helped you to be as successful and achieve as much as you have um, by having that refined focus? I think that the important thing is to win. It's not enough to just care or to complain or to shout about it. It's about deciding what you can do what you're in a position to be able to do and to plan your route map to a very concrete objective. I've actually worked in a number of campaigns on different issues throughout my, my, my life. I've worked in homelessness issues, on climate change. I was part of the Paris climate process. I was involved in forest conservation um, and, and, and many other things. And, and so I suppose you, you could say I've taken on a number of single issues during my time. And in an, at a number of times, I've been able to make a difference, to make change happen in law or, or in other ways. And I suppose this is what I decided to do when it came to the trophy hunting issue, because well, apart from anything else, this is an issue we can win. The public is already on our side on this. Wherever you take opinion polls, and we've done them in Britain, other groups have done them in Germany, in the US and elsewhere, the vast majority of people, 80% or more, are absolutely opposed to trophy hunting. But I also see this as a doorway issue, if you like. So this is one where, you know, fundamentally what this is about is about us as humans exploiting and using nature, other living creatures, uh, for our own purposes with no regard for their welfare or the consequences. And if you look at a lot of the big issues that we face today as humanity, as a human race, as a, as a society, these are all those same issues. You know, we are destroying our natural resources. We're destroying biodiversity. We're provoking this climate emergency for those same reasons, because we fail to take responsibility. We fail to understand that we are part of nature. It's not us and nature, that we are inextricably linked and dependent on its fate as much as it is on ours. And if we understand that through perhaps the prism of this issue, perhaps we can get a real sense of what the challenge is for the wider issues as well, and the changes that we need to make, because it's not enough to try to reduce some global carbon emissions and introduce some green technologies. What we need to do is really some very fundamental changes to the way that we live, 
work and play. And this is a change of mind. It's, it's a paradigm shift that we're talking about fundamentally. And I see through this issue a way to understand those wider challenges and for people to be able to understand and accept the changes, the fundamental roots changes that we need to make as ourselves, as people, and the way that we behave. Definitely, definitely. You couldn't agree more. And I mean, you know, we could talk to you all day, but you are an absolute powerhouse. You know, your knowledge is astounding, and I'm so, so glad that you're getting it out there. And, you know, as, as authors ourselves, we, we know how much of a, a huge labor of love and how intensive and how draining it is to even get one book out, let alone, you know, firing them out the way that you have been. And it's it's just fantastic. But, you know, in, in 2018, I, you know, you would never believe it talking to you now the way we are, but, you know, you have been diagnosed with a rare neurological illness, um, TB and a multi-organ immune disorder disease that has, you know, it left you disabled. And it's, as someone who lives with these challenges as, as well, you know, myself in, in different ways, it's so inspiring to see that you're continuing this crusade and being the amazing advocate that you are despite all these challenges, you know, and, and we know of, of, of well, quite a few members in our activist community who also live with health issues and struggle when trying to be active. And, you know, you're up against so much with what you're doing, you know, I can't even begin to, to comprehend. But do you have any advice for our activists when overcoming adversity, especially ones that you can't control? Um, well, I think with my own condition, I, I recognise that I'm extremely fortunate, both because there are people far worse off than me, but also because I live in a country that has a national health service and is able to provide excellent care. And I have a team of 10 consultants and all the rest of it. So you know, a lot of people, if I'd have been born in almost any other country in the world, I wouldn't have access to, to that. So I'm, I recognize I'm in a very privileged position. Um, and I also, you know, when one is confronted by crisis or by trauma, one of the best ways to heal is to help outside of yourself. Um, you know, it takes, if you, I mean, in a very simple level, it makes you forget about the aches and pains and the things you can't do if you're able to do something and make hopefully the world a slightly better place in the process. So I do find it a form of therapy. I mean, it, when I became ill and when I was eventually diagnosed and so on, I had to give up work. I had to step down from my job. I was the chief executive of the League Against Cruel Sports, which is Britain's largest hunting, anti-hunting organization, or was at the time. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was very difficult. Uh, to realize that I couldn't do that again. But now, you know, as a volunteer, effectively, which is what I am, I'm able to manage my time and energy around my abilities and needs. Um, and I think that's something that we all have to learn to do because there's no point in burning ourselves out in trying to achieve a better world because th that will achieve nothing. You won't achieve your objective. All that you will have done is to make yourself worse. Uh, and that is problematic for everyone, including yourself. But there is something I think very positive uh, about looking beyond yourself, uh, about trying to make uh, a difference more widely in society, in the world that we live in. So it has benefits. You know, you are going to always gain much more by giving than by taking. And thank you so much for sharing that. And um, yeah, I really it makes me to... a bit teary because I'm the same. You know, <laughs> I can definitely feel that. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, finally, you know, where can our followers go to follow your work and also put, purchase your books? 
Um, I would say the best place to start is the website of the campaign to ban trophy hunting, which is quite simply bantrophyhunting.org. So we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram, and you can find all of those links on that website. It's also got links to where you can get the, the book. I mean, you can find them uh, on, on Amazon, for example, type in my name uh, and, and they'll come up. Um, but I would start with, with bantrophyhunting.org because that's got all the resources you need, including what you can do, the things that you can get involved in today, which take very little effort, uh, the things that are easy to do, and which hopefully will start to close this chapter in human history because it's about time it was closed. Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Eduardo's work, check out bantrophyhunting.org. Once again, be sure to follow us on our social media pages for future episodes. And if you're enjoying our content, please leave a review on your chosen podcast platform. This has been Vegan FTA, vegan for the animals. <laughs>